Hi, this is Aaron Orlando reporting for RevelstokeMountaineer.com and Revelstoke Mountaineer Magazine. It's January 27th uh, on the phone from Revelstoke, BC, which is located on the traditional and unceded territories of the Tanaha, Sowetme, Sinaixt, and Silks Okanagan peoples. Um, for 2022, I wanted to turn over a little bit of a new leaf. Uh, we've always done audio uh, podcasts, uh, but uh, they've more been a resource supplement for um, uh, our tech stories. Uh, I'm going to be uh, this year trying to get into a bit more long-form um, interviews. Uh, and the first up is uh, Sonia Firstino, who is uh, the BC Green Party leader and an MLA for Cowichan Valley. Uh, Sonia, thanks for joining to me. I'm really delighted to be here. Great. So a little bit of a, a background on you, Sonia. Um, you are the MLA for Cowichan Valley, first elected in 2017, uh, elected again in 2020, uh, leader of the BC Green Party, as well as house leader there. You were known prior to this, uh, according to your bio, for work on Cowichan Valley watersheds, uh, facilitating conversation between governments and uh, stakeholder groups. And you got your start as the uh, in politics as Area B Director for the Cowichan Valley Region district. And I just wanted to remind everyone listening that we have municipal and regional uh, elections in the fall this year. So uh, how do you get to become a leader of a political party? It starts at the local level. <laughs> um, you also are an educator uh, in background and you've done uh, sort of national uh, level organizing for a bunch of different uh, organizations. So again, thank you so much for joining to me. And Sonia, I wanted to set the tone a little bit for this um, uh, interview by pointing something out. I wanted to give a compliment uh, in in terms of your communications from yourself and the Green Party over the uh, pandemic, in that it sort of stands out to me as being fairly clear. It's a little bit uh, different than some of the patterns I've seen over the past decade or so with other political parties where they often tend to uh, lead with a rhetorical approach uh, to uh, their inquiries and, and uh, often ones that will provoke emotional responses at the outset. Now, I was reading a little bit about the BC Green Party's communication philosophy, which is sort of embedded in your core organizational uh, philosophy. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, uh, before we get started, about how the party approaches communications, why you do it that way, and what you hope to achieve by doing your communications the way you do. Well, it's a really interesting question, and and obviously it's something that we think about a lot, is, mm. is how do we communicate effectively as a political party? Mm. And it's really rooted, particularly for me, but this is throughout the whole party, in that we have a role to play uh, as an opposition party and caucus that has to go beyond just pointing out what we think the government isn't doing well. I, we really need to come to the table with solutions, with ideas, with uh, the extension of our hands to, to work collaboratively. I think that we are not using the full potential of our legislatures and our parliament in Canada because we have these entrenched party systems and we have an election, one party gets a majority outcome, typically the case wasn't in 2017, and, and it becomes this sort of closed mindset of, you know, we're in charge around here, and, and then the opposition party spends four years sort of slinging shots and arrows uh, and trying to find some weak spot. And I, I just don't find that to be a very effective way of being an elected representative. We are 87 of us in there representing our communities and uh, uh, collectively serving all of British Columbia. And from my point of view, the best way we can serve is to not just offer criticism, but consistently offer solutions and ideas um, for how to do better. Mm -hmm. Certainly, that's uh, uh, been a topic of conversation in the journalism world for the past five to 10 years is that specific <clears throat> word solutions based things because you can kind of get stuck in the mud if you're uh, day in and day out uh, reporting on the latest outrage without providing any deeper context or, or seeing uh, or pointing out a way forward perhaps sometime in the, uh, in the commentary. So on that, I want to move into our first topic of conversation. Um, you know, at the start of the year, 
year, I was thinking, who would I like to talk to? Uh, and uh, I got an email release from the Green Party, and uh, it seemed like a natural fit. Uh, this uh, media release from about a week ago is, is focused on COVID. Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk to about specifically is what we can do specifically to uh, sort of better empower rural communities on uh, this focus uh, or on, on this topic. Some of the, you know, the issues I see from a local level include, you know, communications issues, uh, lack of access to data, um, problematic interfaces with government communications when you're, you know, you're trying to find out uh, information that you feel will be helpful in uh, uh, supporting your community, especially at the local health area level, and a, a number of other challenges. And, and what you had to say, or some of your points right now at this point in the pandemic, uh, sort of spoke to those things. So I was hoping to find out a little bit more like sit rep on what the, the Green Party feels we need to be and ought to be doing within the, the context of, uh, you know, late January uh, 2022? Well, it's a, <laughs> here we are two years in, and, and I don't think a single person, in, you know, could, could say that they're not exhausted uh, mm. at some level from, from living through uh, a pandemic. And unfortunately, the virus doesn't care if we're exhausted or not. It's going to operate the way it operates. And I think that what's really essential is we start from a place of um, providing the most accurate information we can to people in order for us to all be making informed decisions about our health. That is the foundation of public health. It's education and providing the tools. Think of it in terms of things like uh, anti-smoking. That is a public health campaign that uh, really picked up speed in the 80s and 90s, informing people about the dangers of smoking, and then pointing them to the tools to to help them move away from smoking. The AIDS pandemic is very similar. We, we got information on a public health level about how HIV is transmitted, and then we got the tools. Condoms everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and nutrition. We have a public health approach to uh, people being able to make good choices about nutrition. We should be approaching COVID the same way. This is an airborne virus. That's how it's uh, transmitted. And, and with that knowledge and information, there can be a whole bunch of policy decisions and tools that are provided. So imagine if all of our classrooms really took seriously, you know, the, the ventilation and air filtration. Not only does that diminish the risk of transmitting COVID in a, in a school setting, but kids are breathing cleaner air. And we know that that's good for education outcomes, health outcomes, and particularly in a province where we now have wildfire seasons, we could look at classrooms of refuge for kids, a place where we, we can know they're going to have clean air. Um, when we look at things like masks, uh, the, the reluctance of this government to acknowledge that uh, an N95 really is the, the best uh, tool that we have at our disposal to reduce transmission of, of COVID. We should be providing these um, widely uh, in, in any setting where there is shared indoor public space. Rapid tests. It's interesting to me that we aren't looking at the disruption that we're seeing now to the economy um, because people don't have access to a basic uh, a basic strategy to understand if they have COVID or not and what choices to make from that. A friend of mine has a, a nanny. She works from home, uh, but uh, her work has been disrupted for weeks on end now because the nanny isn't able to determine whether the symptoms she has are COVID related or not. A rapid test helps us make informed decisions for our own health, but also informed decisions that protect our, our wider community. What I've seen from this government is a kind of all in on one strategy, and that's vaccines. And I, mm -hmm. I'm very pro-vaccine. I, you know, I, I'm delighted that we have this this tool um, to help us navigate through this pandemic. It's not the only tool. We mm -hmm. should be using every tool, and we should be re recognizing that uh, approaching COVID with everything we've got is going to minimize in the in the medium short medium and long term the disruption that we see and so we've been really calling for uh, 
uh, basically a, a, a reality-based approach to this. This is an airborne virus. It, yes, it is here. Um, but we can minimize disruption by starting from a place of evidence-driven uh, recognition of what tools are most effective to combat this this airborne virus. And finally, data. And this government has had a, tr a problem with data from the outset. You know, things like not releasing neighborhood level data at the outset of the pandemic, um, not looking at uh, disaggregated race-based data. So understanding mm -hmm. how this pandemic has hit different sectors of our society differently. Mm -hmm. um, when we make policy informed by good evidence and data, and we are really transparent about what that policy is informed by, but also what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to measure those achievements, then we build trust. Mm -hmm. uh, we bring the public along. And we also are in a place where we're saying, wow, we made this policy. This was the outcome we were trying to achieve. We've been measuring it. We're not getting there. Here's why we're changing course right now. Uh, you know, this is the bare minimum that we should expect from a government. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to look at some of those the, those points in particular. So, for example, the first one was uh, COVID-19 is airborne. And that's, uh, you know, sort of a message that you uh, hear again and again from, uh, you know, out on social media from figures like epidemiologists. They, they are critical of the provincial government's response in response to questions about whether the public education or, or even acknowledgement of airborne transmission is there in BC. You know, the, the government's message has changed over time, yet when questioned now, they will often say, you know, we have acknowledged that uh, it, it is airborne and people generally do know that. Uh, it sounds like you don't... Uh, uh, agree with that and my question is what 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 more in terms of it being airborne would you want them to do to uh, get that mm -hmm. message across more effectively it's a great example uh, and we've seen this widely it's not enough to say yeah we acknowledge that it's airborne but then to not have policies that that come from that place of recognition so again mm -hmm. if, if you're acknowledging it's airborne then there is vent vent ventilation uh, upgrades, filtration, and CO2 monitors in any public space. That's that's a way of acknowledging airborne so that people can be making informed decisions about how safe uh, an indoor space is. If you're acknowledging it's airborne, then you are certainly uh, encouraging people and providing people with access to N95s because those are the most effective masks that we can use against airborne transmission. It's It's similar to this government saying, oh, we acknowledge that climate change is really serious and real and then turns around and and gives billions of dollars in subsidies to the oil and gas industry your actions your policy decisions have to flow from that place of what you're acknowledging is real if they don't you're only saying it you're not actually acting on it mm -hmm. Sonia, and, and to look at another point that you uh, mentioned in terms of indoor air quality we did publish a story this week uh, uh based on um uh, discussions with the school district here on what they had done to address air quality issues over the pandemic. And I think it was good and informative and they outlined their steps, uh, uh, for example, you know, using MERV filtration, um, other, you know, other types of practical steps. So my question is like, um, how would you respond to the government saying, well, hey, once again, we're actually already doing all those things on, uh, for example, focusing in on the school's uh, issue? Again, you know, I'm a big fan of measuring. So let's look at the measurements. Um, is the air quality improved because of this? Are we seeing, uh, you know, a, a way of measuring? And, and CO2 monitors are one, one great mm -hmm. way of doing that. Another thing is, um, and I wrote about this in August of 2020, when we were heading back to school, you know, for the first time in the first year of the pandemic. And I made the case at that point, like, this is a moment to, to really invest in public ed education writ large, make your, your classroom smaller, uh, have fewer kids. We know that that uh, leads to better outcomes. Have more opportunities for outdoor learning. We are in this extraordinary uh, province <laughs> and wherever you are, you know, kids are going to benefit from, from learning in, in different settings. And, and we know that there's amazing research and, and uh, pedagogy around that. 
uh, as we've navigated wave two, three, four, now we're in five of this pandemic, the, the reality that we don't have simple tools to be able to offer kids access to classrooms when they're home self-isolating, when they're sick, or if they're a particularly clinically vulnerable um, child or have clinically vulnerable people in their households, the reality of like we can have parliament as a hybrid approach we have the legislature that's hybrid mlas can can stay home and and still participate fully in the proceedings we should have this capacity for hybrid in our classrooms and these are all investments not just in response to covid but recognizing that we can continually improve our classrooms our school settings and our outcomes for kids it's a real, to me, there's a real sadness that I feel um, that we are reluctant to invest in in children uh, in so many ways in our society. And, and I think it's a testament to us being, of course, this is the, the most important investment we make is in children and youth and in our future. And there are so many things that we could have recognized from COVID that set, that allowed us to improve conditions in classrooms generally. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, on the COVID topic, um, l- look a little bit more about uh, issues that are uh, specific to rural communities. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of those ones here that uh, is... You know, we're uh, in a local health area, the smallest subdivision of the uh, health uh, administration system. And unlike uh, at, you know, at the health authority level um, or, in fact, other levels of, uh, of the system, we, we don't have access to a lot of data here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we can't find active case rates. I've been trying for a long time, uh, months, mm-hmm. to get the most updated uh, population data. They, they do use a number, but uh, it's a, a dated one, and it's been a bit of a mystery uh, why we can't provide that. And one of the effects we have is, uh, of that is, for example, in November of uh, 2020, uh, and again in December of 2021 with the Omicron wave, is that we kind of get swamped real fast uh, when uh, these uh, uh, new variants show up and start spreading. There's not really much indication of what's happening uh, and what is available in terms of the data that's available. It's fairly hard to access. Um, uh, one thing that I would point out is that, you know, uh, other jurisdictions in Canada, other provinces actually run uh, systems where th- that kind of information, that kind of data is available to everyone uh, uh, in local areas live uh, much more uh, currently. So in terms of your perspective on a sort of empowering rural communities to do a bit better, because, you know, we just experienced here in Revelstoke the highest um, case rate uh, for COVID-19 out of any local health area since the pandemic started. It was, you know, quite bad here uh, in December and in January. And, you know, we still have uh, some case rates here. What, what, what can, what, at the local level, would you encourage mm-hmm. to happen to, to further empower us uh, to to respond to these situations? Yeah, and it's it, it's exactly the right word, empower, right? Mm-hmm. And and access to timely data, access to consistent data, is really a, a tool of empowerment for people to make informed decisions and to be able to understand the implications of of whatever decisions they're making. And and I think that. Uh, again, two years in, uh, this shouldn't be something that we're still asking government to do, um, to make the data accessible at a local level to people so that they can understand. It's like a weather report. I'm, I'm going to go out uh, in my, <laughs> I'm going to go out today. I'm going to check the weather to see, you know, what kind of clothing should I wear? I'm going to check the data report on COVID to see the level of of caution and care that I I need to be considering in my interactions. Uh, And and again, this isn't to say we should shut down society or this is actually a way for us to reduce the the disruptions uh, in our community and our society is to have a fully informed and uh, empowered citizenry. Uh, it's the same with rapid tests. If we have access to those rapid tests and, oh, I'm feeling a little off today. I'm going to use a rapid test. Oh, turns out I'm positive for COVID. I am definitely going to make the choice not to 
uh, go out and interact in the public because my my responsibility to my community is to limit the the infections. These infections, you know, they they not only affect us personally in our health. They, as we are seeing right now in hospitals all over BC and you know across Canada, uh, they overwhelm our our hospitals, our urgent care facilities, and that means that people who are needing treatment or tests or surgeries for other health concerns, uh, we, are, we know that there's surgeries being cancelled right now, procedures are being cancelled. It has a knock-on effect. And so I think that it, it, looking at COVID as part of a, a much bigger picture mm-hmm. um, and, and recognizing that, you know, the the government has the capacity to provide these tools and this information and this knowledge so that we can uh, more effectively uh, contain the impact of this virus on our lives and our communities. And I, I, I really am at a loss. Um, here we are, year three, um, that, that we keep repeating the same mistakes in this province. We keep waiting too long as we see a wave coming we can see what's happening in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And and then, you know, we had Dr. Henry say earlier this month, oh, well, we were surprised by Omicron. A lot of people were not surprised by Omicron. Mm-hmm. You just had to look at what was happening in other parts of the world to see what was coming. Uh, we should no longer be surprised. We should be anticipating. We should be proactive. And what I would like to see right now is an indication from this government for how they're preparing for the next wave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly um, one of the groups, uh, the BC COVID modeling group, which is, you know, academics mm-hmm. from SFU and uh, UBC, as well as, as, as others, you know, they were calling in early, they were, you know, projecting their numbers in early December. And, and you know, the warning was due to due to exponential rise, it's going to be, too, it's going to be too much stress on our uh, healthcare system if we do not uh, take steps to pull back. And, mm-hmm. and now in January in uh, Interior Health, uh, where we are here, you know, they've closed or reduced services at several uh, uh, rural health facilities to um, put those resources in, in the wards where they're needed right now because we are seeing uh, the results of, of, of uh, it, you know, uh, more people in hospital with an infection. So, you know, re- real, real world consequences. And, and of course, we can't forget the voices of, for example, uh, an acquaintance of mine who is uh had his uh surgery delayed and is in pain and you know inconvenience for the next several months until it you know gets uh rescheduled again uh delayed because of the covid pandemic um mm-hmm. one last point on the covid uh mm-hmm. panel in your media release you talk about an independent science table mm-hmm. um to serve as uh uh, some sort of an advisory capacity, some sort of an independent advisory capacity. You know, we have a uh, provincial health officer, we have BCCDC uh, that, uh, you know, uh, operates on a, you know, science basis, and that's what we're meant to do. Why are you making the argument now that uh, this is needed here in BC? Well, very much all the things that you and I have just talked about, the the reluctance to uh, make policy decisions based on airborne transmission, the the lack of transparency around data, the uh, lack of access to the basic tools that the public should expect from government. I don't understand what's informing these decisions. I don't understand uh, what evidence, what research, which data is being used to justify these decisions. And I think that this is a, a real concern around uh, ongoing trust in in our public health institution, in government, uh, and and trust is just so 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 essential. Mm-hmm. Um, not just during a pandemic; it's essential to democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason we're calling for an independent table, and you mentioned the COVID nineteen modeling group, and they have you know over and over come out and 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 made calls and and shared their modeling and shared their research and and uh, their processes for understanding the, the data and, and what informs their modeling. This is an example of good, clear communication. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, uh, it's, t- it's really important in the era that we're living in that governments demonstrate that they are indeed pro-science, that they are science-informed. Uh, and I think, again, when you look at some big-picture things in British Columbia, 
um, when we have the kind of year that we did with climate change impacts, the heat dome, the droughts, the forest fires, the atmospheric rivers, uh, and that you have a government that continues to massively subsidize the oil and gas industry. You know, we're talking billions of dollars um, in a combination of tax credits and royalty credits and, and straight up subsidies. Uh, this is hard to understand. This is not a, a science-informed policy decision uh, being made right now. And, and a science table would not only help us to restore that trust, empower uh, people to understand uh, clearly and effectively the pandemic and the virus, but I think it could be applied widely. And I think that you know, having a science table review policy decisions when it comes to land use uh, is a way that we can, again, ensure that government policy decision making is indeed science based. And I think we've had successive governments in British Columbia that have ignored science for a long time. All right. Uh, I want to move on to a new topic. Um, and uh, really, uh, my goal with this one is to uh, glean some new information, find out what you know, as well as find out your perspective on what's going on. And the, the topic is um, the old growth deferrals process. Uh, uh, late last year, the government uh, announced its deferrals process. It had previously uh, indicated uh, new directions uh, in 2020 on uh, old growth plans planning and is now has unveiled it. Uh, from our perspective here in Revelstoke, we are a harvesting and milling center. We have uh, hundreds of people employed at the mills, uh, in the bush, uh, in, in harvesting, and lots of, uh, you know, connection to the community. It truly is a, a, a big uh, economic uh, presence and, uh, and a, you know, a source of um, income uh, and livelihood for many in the community. What we've seen here over the summer is, uh, over the past summer and, and continuing now, is some of the similar stuffs we're seeing a little bit in the lower mainland. We have had a, um, a blockade uh, up in uh, the Argonaut Valley on a, a sort of a remote area that's not accessed by a lot of people. We've had a, a couple wildcat blockades, one on the highway, one on a more well-used forest service road. Um, uh, we've had some deferrals announced, in fact, two waves of them uh, up north in the Argonaut Valley. However, um, in, from my perspective, it's kind of uh, the, the government direction on this has sort of stalled out. Initially, they uh, gave First Nations um, uh, 30 days to respond uh, to them, and that uh, led to some pushback. And what I really want to know is um, what update can you provide mm -hmm. us about what's happening, what comes next, uh, and uh, what we're going to be seeing in the next several months, and what would you, you would like to see in the next several months? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, this is a, a, such an important topic, and I think it's, it's a, a conversation that we should be having uh, more and more often about what is the vision and the future for forestry in British Columbia, and, and how do we navigate it with all of the uh, issues that have to be taken into account. I, I don't have uh, any inside information. I think, uh, you know, one of the things about a majority government is that the, the opposition parties are, are often, you know, if we're ahead on learning anything, it's maybe by 30 minutes <laughs> um, it, from the rest of the public. Uh, but I can see the frustration uh, from how this government has approached, uh, you know, the logging questions, generally forestry management, old growth. But I, I just want to start, and it comes back to what we were talking about with COVID and science. For four years yeah, in the legislature, Adam Olson, the MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, and I have put questions to the, the ministers for forests around old growth, uh, their intentions, their their vision and, and view of it. And for four years, we were basically trapped into a an argument around how do we measure what is old growth, how much is there, and and the the numbers that would come out from from the government were just hard to understand or justify, or certainly did not seem rooted in uh, any kind of transparent scientific analysis. We now have the technical advisory panels report that came out in 2021. 
which gives us a baseline. At least now we can agree on what we're talking about, on mm -hmm. what we define as old growth, how much old growth there actually is left in British Columbia. And that allows us to then look at policy and decision making, starting from a, a, a joint place of agreement on, on basic facts. And I think that this is, again, a, an, an indication of why we would benefit from a science table in British Columbia. Uh, we shouldn't be disputing um, basic facts and data. Now, when it comes to forestry management, um, you know, I think we have to start with a few premises, which is, uh, you know, for decades in this province, um, much of how forestry has been managed has been detrimental to communities and to ecosystems. And when you look at, for example, the data on annual allowable cuts, and you can see uh, the volume of uh, forests that have been logged, and then you lay over that the data on employment and the number of jobs in the sector, you can see that as, as the annual allowable cuts have gone up, 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 the number of jobs in communities have gone down, down, down. And that's largely due to, you know, really extreme mechanization um, and the way that forestry is done. If we were looking at a more selective um, logging approach to forestry, uh, we would actually increase the number of jobs in a community. And we would be able to approach forestry in a, in a much more sustainable way. One of the problems we have in BC right now is the, is the fall down, that there has been so much of the old growth has been logged. Uh, the second, third, fourth growth has not caught up in, in the ability to produce the same kind of volume of uh, timber, um, even if the, the hectares of land that's being logged increases. Um, and so we, we are now paying the price for a, a kind of forestry management that has not really looked at what is a long-term sustainable model of forestry that ensures that communities like Revelstoke, communities in the interior, can have a sense of stability and security around what the employment looks like. What are we trying to achieve with the public resource that is uh, force in British Columbia, is that public resource um, resulting in the best outcomes for, for people and communities? Or um, has the, the kind of profits uh, for large forestry companies really been a driving force in our forestry management? And I would argue that it's, it's largely been the second, but that as government managing a public resource, um, there is a duty that they have to ensure that uh, the benefits of this resource are really staying in communities, are really ensuring that um, we are both managing the forests uh, for healthy ecosystem and sustainability, and we are managing the industry for long-term health of our economy and our communities and the people in those communities. Mm -hmm. If you look at um, that basic value there, you know, if you look back to for 20, 30 years, like the NDP had the, uh, I can always mispronounce this one, the appurtenancy, you know, and again, yeah. that's the same goal as trying to uh, tie employment uh, to uh, local uh, communities, even the TFL system from you know, setting set up back in the 30s was not an environmental based one, but again, in an effort to create more sustainable communities by granting mm -hmm. licenses and keeping in places so the mill doesn't just uproot every several years and and uh, move on down the road. Um, that's a key question and my, my uh, has been a key concern for a long time. And I guess my question for you is, in terms of this process that we are engaging in right now, do you feel we are uh, going to arrive at uh, those solutions under uh, what is planned by the current government and what, what would you be doing differently to, mm -hmm. to make that happen? Such a good question. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, are we going to arrive at where we want to be is, is such a essential question to be asking about any kind of approach or policy that we're taking. Uh, I think we have to identify those outcomes. We have to be clear about where we're trying to get to. Um, and I think we have to take into account that, um, you know, doing things the same way and expecting different outcomes is, is as we know, not a, a rational or logical approach to things. Uh, in the Old Growth Review, review Panel uh, report, 
they called for a paradigm shift in, in forestry management. And if we continue to sort of tinker around the edges of the Forest Act and, and the Forest Land, um, uh, sorry, the Forest Practices Act, we I don't think we're going to get to uh, spectacularly different outcomes. We also have, on top of this, uh, you know, we signed a, or we passed unanimously uh, a piece of legislation in 2019, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples mm-hmm. Act, uh, which is, you know, in its essence, a, a transformative uh, piece of legislation that really reorients uh, a lot of decision making, um, including decision making around land use on. Uh, the territories of First Nations across this province. And I think when you see a government say, well, we've we've made a list of deferrals and now we're going to give First Nations 30 days to agree or not to agree to those deferrals, uh, that doesn't indicate to me any kind of paradigm shift. And it certainly doesn't indicate to me that the, the, the spirit, uh, much less the essence of the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, is, is really being followed. Um, I, I think... We we really want to start at where we want to get to, and that is, you know, communities that can count on long-term uh, stability, uh, economic activity from forestry lands, um, and that those forestry lands are uh, ecologically healthy, that they are not as... Uh, Bob Simpson, the mayor of Quinell, put it once to me, not just food and fuel, you know, food for pine beetle and fuel for um, forest fires. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves, what what are the, the, the measures that we need to take to get to a place where we are operating uh, from the, the starting place of the, the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act? And we are recognizing that we owe... Uh, to the future of our, our communities, uh, a, a much more stable, much more predictable, much healthier approach to forestry practices in this province than than what we've had for uh, really um, far too many decades uh, in, in BC. I think we can achieve it, but I think we have to be honest about where we're starting and we have to be clear about how we are going to measure success in achieving those goals. And this comes back again to data, to transparency, to what is being used to make decisions. How are those decisions being made? Can people understand uh, what's going into that decision making? Are we being, um, are we trying to keep doing the same thing, but paint a different picture of it? And, and that is, you know, not going to be sustainable and, and it's going to erode the trust that we so desperately need. Thank you very much for the response to that. And I just wanted to say, I'm going to cut it short. I'm going to drop out the last question, so our last topic. Okay. So I want to move on to uh, the topic of mountain caribou, and which is, uh, of course, uh, interrelated with uh, the old, gold, mm-hmm. old growth question in this area. Um, the Provincial Recovery Program had another update uh, meeting today. I think, you know, Mount Caribou is something that we've been covering since I've been here for 13 years or, or whatever, uh, and is, is an ongoing topic. I think there's going to be much more activity in the next coming months on the question, and that's uh, because the provincial government has announced that they're going to be sort of engaging in the southern part of the province where Revelstoke is located in the next couple months. They're going to be um, improving their website and communications. They're trying to unveil some new stuff, and specifically what they're going to be engaging engaging here in the Revelstoke level is is the herd level planning. And that's, um, some people say, where the rubber hits the road on this, where you're actually taking a look at individual herds and and as you formulate your recovery plan and the details of it, you know, what the implications of that level planning is, uh, is going to be. What I wanted to really, as much as possible, uh, is, is get, get a bit of an update from you on what you're seeing and what you would like to see uh, on this uh, topic of uh, mountain caribou recovery and then I do have a couple specific questions I want to follow up with uh, after that. Yeah and and again it's interesting how interconnected all of these topics are Um, Mm. and I think that this is something that that we need to expect more from from governments generally is is recognizing the interconnectedness of forestry management of old growth protection and 
um, something like the, you know, the the danger of extinction of uh, species like we're seeing with the mountain caribou. Um, as a starting point, you know, one of the agreements uh, that we had in the Confidence and Supply Agreement in 2017 was that there would be BC would introduce species at risk legislation mm -hmm. that would indicate what we're again trying to achieve uh, in this province when it comes to our duty to protect uh, biodiversity and species at risk, and we we do not have that. Uh, that has fallen off the agenda of this government. Um, and it makes it really easy for them to, you know, uh, forgive the pun, but pass the buck uh, to other levels of, of government and and push back on what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, caribou need habitat, uh, you know, and, and I know we're not going to get to housing and homelessness, but it, it's interesting that, you know, we need to start from this basic premise that living living creatures, whether animals or humans, need a place to live. They need shelter. Mm -hmm. And the habitat that uh, these caribou need are, you know, intact tracts of, of forest um, where they are not subject to the, the real dangers that come from, you know, having to traverse through roads or clear cuts where they become easy targets for, uh, for predators. Um, where they're not having to uh, scramble to find, uh, you know, food and, and shelter. And I think that, you know, we, we then look at, it's like going upstream. We're not looking at <laughs> what's gotten to us to, the, to this situation. We're saying, okay, well, well now what we're going to do is we're going to focus on getting rid of the prey mm -hmm. and, and do wolf calls. Uh, and we would really like to see the kind of enthusiasm that this government seems to have for for wolf calls that transfer to the enthusiasm that we need to have for protecting biodiversity and habitat mm -hmm. for these species. And I, and again, when I say it's interconnected, biodiversity is absolutely connected to human health. Mm -hmm. And if we allow ourselves to continue along the path of this staggering loss of biodiversity, this staggering loss of life on this planet, uh, we cannot pretend that this does not have an impact on on our health, uh, our collectively. Um, and I, I think, again, we need to be able to connect these dots and stop looking at things in silos and recognize that um, these policy decisions that are being made that leave us looking at a species uh, on a herd-by-herd level uh, is an indication of a failure of policy and planning. Mm -hmm. Well, one one of the you you mentioned mentioned wolves. You brought up uh, the predator reduction program that they the the provincial government is engaging in right now. And one of the the questions I want to to ask about that is, um, you know, the government will show on its actual website what uh, you know scientific papers it it uh, is pointing to to support their intervention, and and basically the 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 science for um, uh, predator management argues that you know the the problems that mountain caribou are facing right now, uh, you know, are resulting from a uh, hundred years of uh, uh, and more of industrial uh, mm -hmm. development in the area as well as climate change is, is a significant factor and that in order to recover those um, that habitat um, it takes you know 70 years 100 years in order to have those lichen rich forests and that um, as a result of that, if we want to uh, prevent the short-term extirpation of these herds in specific areas, we need to um, use predator management uh, as a, one of the available tools for us in the short term. Uh, and, I, and, and two other points I wanted mm -hmm. to make on that one is, number one, I think that the, the, the wolf uh, kill, as well as cougars as well, um, has really brought a new dimension to the discussion for it because it is uh, of 
mountain caribou recovery because it is a, a, a very sensitive topic. Um, as you know, there was a, a, a petition that uh, from Pacific Wild late last year that had, uh, I believe, half a million signatures from people opposed to it. Uh, so it really does it really does add some tension to the conversation over this. So just to be clear, um, mm-hmm. is you know from your perspective on the BC Green Party, is is that just a wrong policy choice that the government is making in terms of uh, the the predator managed the active predator predator management happening around here? If predator management is the only tool and is the only solution, then yes, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. If there is a, a plan uh, with very clear outcomes that are being achieved, and as you say, the restoration of habitat, mm-hmm. uh, that is the solution in the, in the medium to long term. Mm-hmm. So if, if in isolation, the only policy tool being used is predator management, then we will not succeed. Um, And I think that it's important that we recognize, as you say, the history you just outlined and and explained really well. This is is the net result of, um, you know, over a century of heavy industrial use of the land base without a consideration for the uh, you know the the holistic impacts to um, you know not just species like caribou, but to watersheds, to the ability of land to manage um, you know serious weather events like like an atmospheric river. Uh, you know we're starting to see the knock-on effects of of land use and land management begin to to really demonstrate what what the implications of this are and until we take seriously the need to to focus on restoration and I, I think there's some really great examples of um, you know indigenous protected conservation areas mm-hmm. uh, where we can absolutely lean into the extraordinary, knowledge and wisdom that is in indigenous communities um, to be able to begin in earnest that work of restoration of our land because we are absolutely connected and dependent on it. Mm -hmm. And we have to stop thinking of us and our actions as somehow separate from uh, the the natural world and, and the land that we rely on for survival and well-being. And so you know, anything, any one tool used in isolation from, from a long-term goal mm-hmm. uh, is, is not an effective way. And, and to me, it just comes right back to COVID. We have a multitude of tools and approaches that we should be using uh, to combat this, this virus. Um, but when we have a government that says, oh, we're just going to focus on one tool and that's vaccines and it's the only tool we want to talk about, well, you can see where that gets us. Uh, all right, uh, excellent. I just want to ask one last question, then we'll, uh, mm-hmm. then we'll wrap it up. And it's, again, related to mountain caribou. Um, you pointed out lack of species at risk uh, legislation in BC. Uh, in fact, the latest uh, recovery effort right now for mountain caribou that's going on was a result of federal pressure um, mm-hmm. on their federal species at risk legislation, essentially um, a threat or a, a promise, however you want to call it, from the federal government that unless the provincial government stepped it up uh, and uh, showed that they were doing stuff on the ground to uh, to manage this file, they they could potentially step in and manage the file. I don't think that concern is is as present. I think the, the the federal government has backed off after seeing some action. But my question is specifically focused on what level of resources the provincial government is bringing to this recovery effort. For example, we know that predator management is is a controversial topic. Uh, however, within predator within uh, mountain caribou recovery. There are uncontroversial topics such as um, decommissioning forest service roads that we know uh, end up being super highways for wolves to access uh, high range uh, habitat that the, you know the caribou uh, seek out for protection and 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 living space in the winter. Um, that as one example of something that is is not uh, not that controversial. Uh, there are many other topics that are. What what do you really on this particular topic want to be seeing, and what is your comment on how we're doing? On, on those practical uh, steps that uh, 
can lead to some improvement. And one thing I would point out is that, you know, the Columbia North herd uh, in the late 2020 report, it had increased to 184 uh, animals. And that was, a re- you know, there's been predator management up there. However, there was also a maternal penning project that went on for several years, as well as other uh, interventions that managed to lead to some short-term success, like the, the successes you were mentioning in, in uh, more north in the province, uh, involving mm-hmm. similar uh, sort of bou- bouquet of uh, solutions applied by uh, First Nations there. Well, I mean, you're, you started by asking what are the resources, and I, I don't have the answer to that, but I mm-hmm. think it's something that we can absolutely look for in, mm-hmm. the, in the upcoming budget, because in a way, that, that tells you what level of priority government has on this topic, is how much um, effort and resources that they're putting into it. Um, and again, I think what what isn't going to work um, is is thinking that we can just make a few adjustments around the edges and and somehow get to different outcomes than what we're seeing. This comes back to the paradigm shift. Uh, It comes back to asking ourselves the question of what do we owe the future? What do we owe future generations? Uh, And what is our our duty and responsibility to put in place actions and and policies now that will get us to to that debt uh, that we owe? And um, it's often in governments because of the, the short electoral uh, framework that we work under, you know, um, getting long-term thinking and long-term planning in place can be a real challenge because it's, it's typically not, you know, the, the flashy uh, electoral win that a lot of governments or parties are going to be looking at. And this is why I think in, on something like this and on many other Um, issues that we face, crises that we face, if we took a more collaborative effort towards achieving uh, consensus in the legislature across all three parties and implemented policies that are evidence-based, research-driven, but also that have the support of all three parties, we're not going to see the kind of, well, you know, we were going in that direction for a few years. Now we've got a new government. We're going to completely change direction. We're going to undo all that work. We need a different approach to, to governance to, that recognizes that the, the challenges we face now are so significant and so long-term that we, can, we have to move away from short-term thinking in government. And I know I'm not specifically talking about, about the caribou here, but the caribou are... are a really great symbol of um, generation over generation of of governments making short-term decisions. Uh, Sonia Firstenau is the BC Green Party leader and MLA for Cowichan Valley. Uh, she's joined me, Aaron Orlando, uh, for uh, this interview for uh, RebelstokeMountaineer.com today on uh, February or sorry, January 27, 2022. It sh- certainly felt like a long uh, 2022. Um, mm-hmm. um, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate you taking the time. And also, um, I just want to note that uh, you're one of the first person I reached out to uh, this year for sort of the new longer format thing. And you said yes right away. So I'd like to thank you uh, for that. Aaron, it's been a real pleasure. And, and I'm, as you might have noticed, the, the long form interview and answers is something that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm particularly uh, happy to engage in. And please reach out anytime. I really think this is a, a great way to have Uh, conversations and discussions that go beyond talking points. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, Thank you. Have a great day. You too.